Hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Silicon Dreams on Radio Zindagi 1550 AM. Joining me today in the studio, we have Warren who has an illustrious career not just uh, looking at products and innovations in the web3 realm, but he has been in the legal field for well over a decade two decades now and we are extremely thrilled to have Varun join us here in the studio on the silicon dreams as today we are going to break down the history of bitcoin and its journey today we are going to talk about where btc started and where it is today with the launch of the recent ETFs and if you are not aware of these recent bitcoin ETFs don't worry because we are going to be breaking it all down today so varun welcome to the show this is your show host sonia the founder and ceo of orbis 86 and varun before we move ahead i would love for you to talk to our audiences and give a 30 second intro of your background great uh, thank you so much sonia really a pleasure uh to join you on the show um so uh i'm a us corporate and uh, securities lawyer for over 25 years uh have worked in new york city grew up on wall street uh um and um uh lived in europe for 10 years and then most recently in the bay area for 10 years uh and i i've uh in my career i've always been gravitated towards new technologies new things and about 10 years ago i came into bitcoin as the chief legal officer for a company here in the bay area and i love the law um i love the uh crypto industry and uh and you know look forward to talking to you uh about this area and uh just give me let me give a small disclaimer as well you know these are uh what i'm going to say is my own um it's not uh uh advice or tax advice or investment advice etc you know for, uh, on behalf of uh any entity uh, any companies i'm affiliated with thank you thanks for the disclaimer varun again <laughs> guys the silicon dreams is an informational show we do not give out any financial advice on the show however what we do do here and i think we do a good job at that is bring awareness to the masses on what web3 and ai is about and after that guys it is literally your decision to go and investigate further whether you're looking at web3 and ai as just technology layers or whether you're looking at them as investment vehicles so again the views expressed on this program it's the views of the program host and the guests here and as varun said you know not of any other entities that we are associated with and by the way nobody is paying us to be on the show so we are here to just have fun and again whatever little knowledge we have share that with the audiences the lovely audiences who are listening to the silicon dreams today now with that uh, varun let's just start talking about bitcoin right mm-hmm, like you know mm-hmm. when bitcoin launched back in 2009 the first white paper came out in 2008 and in 2010 2011 the price of bitcoin was 10 cents 0.1 dollar right uh for a while it was 10 cents and then suddenly it went from 0.1 to 0.2 and everybody was like <laughs> look at that And before okay. you know by 2014 2015 bitcoin was at 
hundred dollars mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and today bitcoin is at fifty thousand dollars today mm -hmm, mm -hmm, so what mm -hmm. even resulted in this phenomena is it just a bunch of uh, people going like crazy over that mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. is there some real logic to it and we are very glad by the way to have somebody from mm -hmm. the legal landscape present mm -hmm. with us mm -hmm, because many mm -hmm. a times when we just have like you know young 20 year olds on the show people are like oh these guys are just degens right <laughs> but you have seen the world <clears throat> and i would love to hear about it from your lenses because you also have a very unique perspective on what bitcoin is when it comes to bitcoin being a storage of value mm -hmm, i'd love mm -hmm. to hear mm -hmm, your mm -hmm. thoughts on it uh sonia that is a great question and uh i came into bitcoin when i was already a lawyer for 17 years, including as a partner at a major law firm. So I was taking companies public. I was a securities lawyer. And I was a skeptic. I was a very big skeptic. Uh, in 2014, I, uh, I watched the hearings uh, that uh, I think one of, were one of the first hearings in Congress uh, where people were questioning what is Bitcoin, etc. I've had my own personal Bitcoin journey, right? I, I was a skeptic. I, I was working in a Bitcoin company. But over the 10 years, uh, I've come to realize that Bitcoin is, is very hard to characterize. And, you know, the, the, uh, the parable that you might have already heard of, right? Three blind men touch an elephant, and one touches the tail, one touches the side, and one touches the tusk. And they all think they have touch something that they have experienced, but it's neither. It's, you know, it's none of them can get it right. And that's unfortunately, or fortunately, is what is Bitcoin. It is one of the amazing technological innovations that by luck or by design has put together so many different areas, you know, basically starting with a very, very interesting technology you know, code base. It's an open source code base. So in 10 years, the smartest people in the world haven't been able to hack Bitcoin because, and it's open source, right? So anybody who's anybody, you know, the smartest engineers in the world can read the open source code and say, well, I'm going to hack Bitcoin, but they haven't been able to. Uh, the, the, the structure, the architecture of combining cryptography uh, combining proof of work um, and and having it launched over the internet, all these things uh, were uh, precursors to Bitcoin. So Bitcoin could not have existed until we had a very very good internet, until we had very very good cryptography, uh, until we had you know uh, very interesting people who said, hey, let's incorporate proof of work and game theory into this system. So there are so many ways to describe Bitcoin, but you know, initially even the Satoshi uh, white paper said it's just a payment, a peer-to-peer -peer payment system. But then somebody said, hey, I'm going to collect these tokens. And then somebody else said, well, I'm going to create a place where these tokens can be traded. And all of a sudden, you know, we were trading tokens and price was going from pennies to, to thousands of dollars. So, so Bitcoin continues to evolve. And again, like I said, it's a code base that has had various improvements over even the short 10, uh, 12 years of its life. And there have been bugs and they have been solved. 
So it is a organic, growing uh, code base. Uh, innovations continue to be built on top of it. But I think you have to uh, go back and, and really marvel at uh, whoever's the Satoshi or the group of people who said, let's put together these disparate things. So just for context, nobody knows who is the creator of Bitcoin. There are a lot of speculations, but no one has been able to put their finger on and say it is this guy or this girl or this group that created Bitcoin. So the rise of Bitcoin or the creation of Bitcoin is attributed to a white paper that was released back in 2008. Mm -hmm. The author of that white paper was Satoshi Nakamoto. Mm -hmm. And that mm -hmm. was obviously a pseudonym. Mm -hmm. Now, mm -hmm. whom did that pseudonym <laughs> represent? Nobody has been able to crack that, just like nobody has been able to hack into Bitcoin. Uh, yes, you know, we are looking at very strong cryptography. Uh, there have been speculations that with quantum computing, people might be able to hack. But mm -hmm. there's also a big movement towards creating quantum computing safe cryptographic <laughs> methods. So I think, you know, yeah. we'll cross mm -hmm. that bridge when we get there. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. sorry to interrupt yeah. you, just wanted yeah. to give people a context yeah. that, you know, the Satoshi yeah. name that we're referring to, yeah. why do we sound so uncertain? And, and you know, I in, in so many people ask me and what I would, uh, one thing I'd like to mention, there is no company called Bitcoin. So there is no CEO or you know, the, the founder or CTO of Bitcoin, it is a completely open, decentralized community that, again, because of the excitement around how this was architectured and how it grew, people have come together and have, have, have promoted it, have developed on it. Uh, but that's a very, very interesting fact, right? A typical start, Bay Area startup has a CEO, has financiers, and has, you know, all kinds of uh, folks who are trying to build something. But this has been built completely in the open by people who don't know each other, by people who are sitting on, you know, every continent, maybe except for Antarctica. Uh, and it works. So it, it is works. something unique. And also the idea of decentralization, right? Quite often we hear it. But as you said, just like Bitcoin doesn't have a CEO or a central group of authorities mm -hmm. who are responsible for Bitcoin, mm -hmm. similarly, Bitcoin is also like the whole Bitcoin, the blockchain isn't hosted on any single server. So mm -hmm. as long as there is at least one person somewhere running a node for Bitcoin, Bitcoin will alive. And today uh, will stay alive. And as we know today, we have thousands of people. So the mm -hmm. folks that we often refer to as miners mm -hmm. are mm -hmm. technically people who are providing services, computational services to help support the network. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. when we look at how it is deployed, it's basically a network of thousands of computers, thousands of uh, computing machines. Mm -hmm. connected to each other over the internet mm -hmm. and as long as at least one of this machine is up and alive bitcoin mm -hmm. survives but mm -hmm. more importantly as long as we have this network of thousands of computers working to solve the problem mm -hmm. that also makes it really hard to hack into the network because mm -hmm. now mm -hmm. anyone who wants to hack into the network has to get access to more than 50% of these computers mm -hmm. to be able to manipulate anything. And that's no easy task. Yeah, exactly. And uh, this is, uh, again, very interesting about Bitcoin is that 
these uh, Bitcoin nodes, and you know, a lot of people estimate them to be something like in the order of about 50,000 independent Bitcoin nodes in the world. And again, we go back to the architecture of Bitcoin. Why are these people so incentivized to record the correct transactions on the blockchain, right? So the blockchain ledger is a ledger and it records every transaction and it records every transaction correctly. And it has done that for 10 years without a single fault. So why does it work? And you know, our program is too short to explain, but again, this is one of the innovations where the person or the group of people who put together this architecture designed it with not just programming in mind, but with real economic theory, with uh, game theory, to design it in a way that every player in the system of mining is incentivized to come to the right conclusion, to come to the right, recording the right transactions, and to have consensus amongst them. So again, you know, all the fact that we have the internet is is like a prerequisite, right? That's the only way for these thousands of miners to talk and agree on a consensus and to do this proof of work that is needed to prove that they are uh, worthy enough to be able to record a transaction and in return for which miners earn uh, Bitcoin. And, and that's, you know, that's really the innovative part, one of the innovative parts of Bitcoin and, and that's the why, reason why it works. Yeah. Thanks Varun. So as we move ahead in our segment, uh, after Bitcoin in 2012, 13, we had Ethereum mm -hmm. that became mm -hmm. the second favorite child <laughs> <laughs> or the second favorite heartbeat, right, of, the, of everyone in the crypto economy. What new innovation did Ethereum add to mm -hmm. the Web3 mm -hmm. ecosystem? Yeah, so Ethereum, and you know, we, I, I recall when it, uh, was trying to do its ICO. I was in a Bitcoin company and you know we were like Bitcoin maximalist, meaning that we just thought Bitcoin is it and everything else is crap. It's the alpha <laughs> and the omega. <laughs> but, you know, Ethereum proved us wrong uh, because Ethereum introduced this concept of program uh, programming uh, the blockchain so that you can write smart contracts and deploy them in this virtual machine on the blockchain so that when you are moving a token on this blockchain, you can actually automate it. You can just write a simple logic on the blockchain that says if X equals Y, then do Z. So this ability to program the blockchain and to launch smart contracts, which again are all immutable, all get recorded, all transactions get recorded, and Ethereum also started with proof of work, so it was very similar in that respect to Bitcoin. But uh, it, you know, it caught on. Now, of course, the the way, unfortunately, Bitcoin, you know, has been acknowledged by the SEC as not being a security. However, Bitcoin was unique in the sense that it grew organically. Every project afterwards, every, every project of import afterward has had to have an ICO, meaning initial coin offering, where, and that's including Ethereum, where they said, hey, in order to raise money, we're going to offer Ethereum in an initial coin offering. And then uh, 
unfortunately, that you know is is a, is an indication of security. It's a criteria that yes, the project raised money in order to fund itself, and that's kind of one of the original sins of Ethereum, which you know of course you can't take away. And there's been a lot of discussion. You know, you know, one SEC uh, commissioner said, no, you know, I think I think Ethereum is okay now. And then you know, the next set of commissioners said, no, we don't think uh, Ethereum has. Uh, uh, is uh, has has kind of you know gotten rid of its original sin, uh, but that's kind of the you know. But I think maybe even moving the trans uh, conversation forward, right? We have the Bitcoin ETF, but the next big exciting thing that we're all waiting for in the crypto space is that there will be, and I'm pretty confident that there will be, uh, Ethereum ETF, and and maybe you know tens of combinations. If somebody wants 50% exposure to Bitcoin, 50% exposure to Ethereum, then there will be a ETF that will uh, Provide wait. Provide them with both. Yeah, wait yeah. the investment 50-50. So, so before yeah. we go ahead any further, right, I'm pretty sure that a lot of our listeners who are savvy investors, um, even just a little bit savvy, you know, they have obviously come across ETFs and some of the more popular mainstream ETF names that our listeners might have heard are ETFs like S&P 500 mm -hmm. or the mm -hmm. Dow Jones Index, mm -hmm. DGI, right? Mm -hmm. But for others who may not be as savvy, mm -hmm. can we start by just quickly talking about what are ETFs? Sure, sure. And uh, Sonia, you probably more, know more about ETFs than I do. Uh, I've been so focused on crypto for the last 10 years, but ETFs are basically fully regulated mutual funds. But rather than holding a portfolio of investments that are kind of managed, right? You have a manager picking this or that, selling, buying. Uh, ETFs uh, are focused on only one index or one asset. So you have you know S&P ETFs. You have uh, uh, QQQ is focused on the Nasdaq uh, index, uh, and now we have about ten brand new Bitcoin ETFs that are only focused on Bitcoin. So when you're buying into an ETF through normal, um, you know traditional uh, stock exchanges, infrastructure brokers, you know your Fidelity relationships, Vanguard, etc. Uh, you are able to buy uh, a Bitcoin ETF through normal channels, fully regulated channels. But when you are buying ETF, you're simply buying into the pool of ET uh, Bitcoin that that ETF holds. So that is great because that's, that was going to be my next question, right? Like we have 10 Bitcoin ETFs that were approved. They received like an expedited approval, in fact, right, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in Jan of this year. And mm -hmm. since then, we have had about um, uh, these ETFs, these 10 ETFs account for 4% of the total market cap of Bitcoin. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. As of today, the market cap of Bitcoin is over 1 trillion. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. uh, the overall market cap of crypto is over two trillion, but Bitcoin alone accounts for half of that market cap, right? Correct. And these ETFs account for about four percent, or close to forty billion, mm -hmm, of mm -hmm. of a trillion dollar economy of Bitcoin. So my question is going to be that hey, you know, you have you already have access to Bitcoin. You can go and buy Bitcoin on traditional crypto exchanges, mm -hmm, but you also mm -hmm. have more uh, traditional 
regular investing platforms like Robinhood, etc., as well, mm-hmm. that now mm-hmm. offer you the yeah. ability to buy Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. So in mm-hmm. So what are the advantages of the ETFs? Because even when you're buying into an ETF, mm-hmm, you're technically, mm-hmm. as you said, right? Mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. are buying into a pool of Bitcoin. So when I buy, and let us just also, I'll quickly mm-hmm. touch upon the names of the top three, or maybe, you know, you can give us those names, mm-hmm, Warren. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But uh, we are saying that there are 10 ETFs, but mm-hmm, mm-hmm. there are a couple of names that everybody has heard, right? So you want to talk maybe about the top three uh, BTC ETFs that are there mm-hmm. and then also address this question as to how is it different from buying into Bitcoin and how would these ETFs make a difference uh, in the near future? Mm-hmm. Sure, sure, Sonia. So uh, the top three ETFs currently are Grayscale, um, uh, BlackRock and Fidelity. So obviously everybody I'm sure has heard of BlackRock and Fidelity because they have something like, I, I didn't look up the number, but probably you know, trillions of dollars under management. Uh, they are very, very big Wall Street players who've been around for many years. So BlackRock uh, alone has $10 trillion <laughs> okay. of assets under management. I just looked up the figure, <laughs> by the way, right? Okay. Uh, now, Grayscale is uh, is unusual because they are a very, very, very successful company in the crypto space. And one of, you know, their, their founder, Barry Silbert, who I've met, uh, is a very, very successful entrepreneur. And he had the idea, you know, even 10 years ago to uh, create, you know, basically like an alternative to ETF where it's a trust structure. You know, it, it, you, you buy shares in the trust. Uh, after a certain period of time, you can trade them. But the trust holds Bitcoin. So conceptually, it's very similar to an ETF. So, so his organization, Grayscale, has been around for 10 years. And when the SEC gave the go-ahead, they allowed uh, Grayscale also to convert their trust into a more traditional ETF structure. So anyway, so they've had a 10-year start, and they had something like $30 billion in Bitcoin already in their trust. So what's happening now is a little bit of a, you know, is a rebalancing, right? So you've got the big player. Yes, they're losing some deposits because... um, uh, the, people are interested in buying into the the uh, BlackRock and the Fidelity ETFs, which you know might offer a little bit more, a uh, better fee structure, so less fees. Uh, they're bigger players, right? They're, they've got their marketing, you know, juggernauts out there telling, you know, all their uh, advisory relationships to to buy into these ETFs. So yeah, so we're seeing a little bit of a rebalancing, but but uh, GBTC, which is the ticker for Grayscale's. Uh, Bitcoin ETF is still, I think, holds something like twenty billion dollars of, of uh, has has an overall value of twenty billion of uh, Bitcoin, and I think uh, uh, BlackRock's iShare has about five billion or six billion, and then Fidelity has another five billion. So those are the three big players currently. Now, your, Sonia, your second question of why buy an ETF versus just buying on Coinbase, I think it's a very fair question. Uh, you know, in general, like I'm very comfortable operating my Fidelity account as well as operating my Coinbase account. But some people may not be; they may not want to start. Uh, you know, if they're already holding stocks and bonds uh, through traditional means, through traditional brokerage accounts, for them it's just very, very easy now to just to buy a Bitcoin e- uh, uh, ETF uh, and to be to have comfort that this says, you know, this is a, a SEC-approved product. Um, 
of course, the some of the drawbacks of that is that you know your your entire holding is now visible to um, to the broker to to other people in the chain, uh, and you can never kind of you know get your Bitcoin out, right? If you really wanted to. You know, and and you know, and, and I don't want to like start a whole another. Uh, <laughs> I know uh, if, if we could go down the rabbit hole yeah, here, but thread just to, here, just to uh, simplify what yeah, you're saying, right? Yeah. If I hold Bitcoin and I want to send Bitcoin to anyone in the world, as long as they have an eligible wallet, I can easily do that. But if I hold a GBTC, which is a representation, or rather a buy-in into the pool of Bitcoin yes. held by Grayscale, uh -huh. mm -hmm. I cannot just go and say that, oh, you know, I have some Bitcoin and just transfer it to someone yeah. else. Yeah. So it takes that away and it makes it a very traditional investment asset yeah. when, yeah. when you know, you're investing yeah. in ETF. Yeah. So that's yeah. maybe one of the yeah. drawbacks. But then as yeah. we discussed, there are also pros to yeah. it, right? Well, what, you know, so going back to my earlier discussion of why Bitcoin took off, right? It obviously, there was a need and and you know this is a whole separate discussion, but uh, Bitcoin is uh, pseudonymous, meaning that uh, you know other than that public address where your Bitcoin sits, nobody knows who's behind that public address. So people craved for that privacy that I think we started to lose after 9/11, right? And people craved for some of that privacy. Um, and so when you buy, you know, Bitcoin directly, whether it's on Coinbase or some other platform, you know, you have the ability to move that Bitcoin into a brand new wallet that nobody knows about. Uh, so that's a very, you know, interesting fact, factoid about having Bitcoin, right? You can be very... Uh, anonymous. Absolutely. So, you know, you can remain anonymous. And besides that, just to give a quick uh, thought, uh, like, you know, a quick perspective of how the markets are right now, the Bitcoin market, as we said, it's a one trillion market cap. And then Warren, thanks for sharing these figures, figures with me earlier today. But we know that Apple sits on like, you know, three trillion market cap. <laughs> but uh, Apple's 24 hour trading volume is like 20 billion or 10 billion rather 10 billion, and bitcoin yeah. is generally in the range of 20 to 30 billion so with one third the market cap of uh, apple it actually does twice in terms of the trading volume so that just shows how much liquidity is there plus the bitcoin market is a 24 by 7 market right you can trade it at any time so there is a lot of liquidity even for people who are looking at it just from an investment aspect and there is great technology backing it for people who want to really use it it uh, also removes issues that we face with remittances and stuff because anyone anywhere in the world can now transact with each other in a matter of a few seconds and um, we will continue, you know, this conversation, oh, hopefully over another segment. Before we conclude, Varun, I would love for you to talk about your role at Casper mm -hmm, and also mm -hmm. um, your role as the CEO of Varun Gupta Law. Great, great. Yeah, so so uh, I devote a lot of time to Casper Labs where um, I've been involved for five years. And Casper, at Casper Labs, we launched our own you could say version of Ethereum. So uh, we had a market cap of currently of something like $500 million, the Casper token trades, and it, it had gone up to about 2 billion. So very successful token. Uh, but the blockchain itself is purpose-built for enterprise use cases. So we you know we made some certain uh, decisions in the architecture that it's well-suited 
uh, and it uses Rust programming. So anyway, one of the mo things that I'm most excited about is that we we are working with IBM. Uh, there have been public announcements where we are going to be featured as one of the solutions on their uh, Watson X governance platform where uh, you will be able to, I mean, users of Watson X uh, uh, AI platform will be able to uh, augment uh, their use of the uh, of the uh, large language models deployed through Watson X to uh, record transactions on the blockchain. And, you know, there are various kind of advantages of the blockchain uh, in that context, especially like, you know... Uh, so again, if people are not aware, Watson is a flagship AI product of IBM, and IBM has been working on Watson uh, since even before generative AI became the new favorite baby of the internet. Uh, the Watson platform for AI has been IBM's flagship platform for well over a decade or two decades mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And uh, IBM's Watson has also like, you know, won championships against former Go players and whatnot. So it has been in the market for well over two decades, I would say. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so very briefly, uh, we we will be providing a blockchain backend, so to speak, for that platform so that uh, users of uh, large language models will be able to basically have like end-to-end -end data integrity and auditability so that transactions, you know, what is being fed into the large language model can be timestamped on the blockchain. Uh, you can have version control timestamped onto the blockchain. Um, you can also, uh, and you know, typically blockchain systems in uh, involve multiple parties, so it's very easy to, again, timestamp you know, where, what multiple parties did in a blockchain. So all of that is being built so that it will work on the on the uh, uh, Watson AI governance platform. So this is a great example of how AI governance can be built on top of blockchain. And again, blockchain is immutable. So tomorrow, when it comes to a point where you know we see that there are mistakes being made by AI, we see that right now too. You can go and look at the logs on blockchain to really understand what went wrong where and nobody can actually mess around with it because it's immutable so that's the biggest advantage of you know using the blockchain as a record keeping system for the ai decisions that are being made with that guys you know warren it was an absolute pleasure having you here on the show guys if you are interested in connecting with warren you can visit his website, which is vguptalaw.com. So V for Varun, vguptalaw.com. You can go and find his contact information over there. And again, Varun has been a lawyer, a traditional. He used to first work with securities. Now he's working in the crypto space and the chief legal officer of Casper Labs. Varun, it was a pleasure having you here on the show today. Thank you so much for joining us on the Silicon Dreams. Thank you. My pleasure.